Father in heaven, thank you for giving us life and Bibles and another day to gather and worship. And as we open up to this portion of your word, Lord Jesus, it tells us about you. Would you cause us to fall all in love with you all over again and to fall all down on our knees to adore you and to bow before you and to submit ourselves to you all over again. And Lord Jesus, would you send the Holy Spirit to attend to the ministry of the word so that men and women and boys and girls can be saved in the preaching today, that they would receive Jesus as the bread of life for their soul. And Father, this week and in coming weeks, prepare our hearts so that we'll be all ready for Good Friday and the crucifixion and Easter Sunday and the resurrection and help us to rejoice before you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So just before we drop in to John chapter 6, I want to read you next to last chapter, John chapter 20. John gives us a purpose statement. Here's why I wrote. Like, just in case you're wondering, what is the gospel of John supposed to accomplish? What's it there for? Here's a purpose statement. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 John writes, now Jesus did many other signs. That's going to be a theme in our passage today, signs. The word signs comes up a lot. What's a sign? It points to something else. What's it point to? It points to Jesus' divinity. It points to the fact that he's the redeemer. The sign he performs points that he came from God. It points to he's the Messiah. The, the signs pointed to things about him. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, here's the purpose clause, so that you may believe. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. That's divinity. That's God in the flesh. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. John wrote this so that you, my friend, may have life in the name of Jesus. So let's drop into chapter six. And we really had, we're headed for the middle, the portion I read earlier, but we got to read a few verses earlier in the chapter to give you some background. And what I really want to show you is there's an emphasis on, there's some talk about the crowd. So I've got to introduce you to the crowd because then Jesus is going to have some words for the crowd. So what's going on with this crowd? Who are they? What's happened with him and them so far? So drop back to verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd, interesting Greek words, the way they sound, aklos palus, a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Man, this guy heals sick people. Let's follow him. No one else has ever done this. Let's go see what this is all about. A large crowd. Some of those signs had already been performed and recorded in the Gospel of John, but as what John told us in chapter 20, there were many other things he did that didn't get recorded, so we're led to believe Jesus had healed many, 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 many people by this point. So there's this large crowd that saw the signs and they're following him. They don't really get who he is yet. They don't really get what's going on. But now 
They're hungry. That's kind of what happens next. Maybe the disciples are hungry, but the disciples know the crowd's hungry, and they're worried. They were professional warriors. They were good at this. Lord, where are we going to get food for so many people? What are we going to do? Everybody's getting hungry. Bellies are growling. They found that they were, there was a boy who had five barley loaves. I like the detail. Barley, not just loaves, five barley loaves and two fish. By the way, there's some other interesting details. All four Gospels, this is the only miracle of Jesus. He's about to feed the 5,000. It's the only miracle of Jesus recorded in all four Gospels, which kind of says, this one's, this one's special. We all have to mention this one, this sign that Jesus performed. And over in Mark, he had some interesting details. He tells us they, they sat them down, all these people who were hungry, and Jesus is going to feed them. They sat them down in groups of 100s and 50s, I guess because it was quite a thing to manage to get the food to every group and so on, so easier to get them in groups. And Mark also adds that the grass was green. I think that's a cool little detail. It probably tells us, commentators suggest, it tells us what time of year it is. It's not summer because it would be brown. So it's like spring. There's been some rain and the grass is green. So it was a nice place to sit down. And Jesus said, John 6, 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down and how many, of their, how many men were there? About 5,000 in number. So do the math. There's 5,000 men. What about if we add in women? What about if we add in children? And they're following Jesus. How many people? And it seems like the responsible commentators do a little math and they all agree. Maybe one read the next and read the next and they're all getting the same. But they all say there's about 20,000 people out there following Jesus around. And so he feeds from a couple of barley loaves and a couple of fish. He feeds 20,000 people. Had anyone ever done that before? Negative. Has anyone ever done that since? No. Something really remarkable happened here. It's in all four Gospels with varying details. Not only did Jesus feed them all, one of the, commenta one of the uh, writers, Gospel writers, says he gave them as much bread and as much fish as they wanted. So they ate to their full. They're burping. They're getting sleepy. They're rubbing their bellies. They're all happy. And yet they gathered up leftovers, 12 baskets full. So this is what Jesus does with this huge crowd. It's an amazing miracle. Now we're getting warmer. Stay with me. We're building up to the story and it starts to get good. And then it gets more good. And then it gets more good. So verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. The definite article is there. It has an antecedent. There's somebody referred to, somebody sometimes said, there will come a prophet. This is the one, they're saying. They all knew about him because they were all Hebrews and they'd been instructed in the law of Moses and they knew from the book of Deuteronomy that there were these predictions that Moses made that this prophet's going to come. It's so good. Let's, let's, go out and let's go back and look at some of that. So we're going to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 18 and Moses writes 
Verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. These people said, he's here. We have identified, we're the people who get to be living on the planet when that prophet 1,400 years ago was predicted, was prophesied, and he's here. This is indeed him. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. That's very significant, that like me. There is no other prophet like Moses in the Old Testament. I want to say he's in a category of his own, but no, it's not. he's in the same category, prophet, leader of God's people. There are others. There, you know, who are some of the other great prophets? Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Elijah, and Elisha, and you can name all the others. There are all these great prophets, but Moses towers above them by virtue of the multiplicity and the power of miracles God performed through him, through his hands. And the way that Moses, unlike any of the others, met with God. God met with him as, as you meet with a man. God met with him face to face. Numerous times, multiple times, Moses was face to face with God. Moses carried the tablets up the mountain. God took his finger and wrote the ten words in them. And Moses carried them back down twice. There's no other prophet who had anything like Moses. He towers over them. But he told the people, there's going to come another like me. There's coming another towering prophet. He will perform amazing deeds. And when, when you identify him, if he shows up in your lifetime, it is to him you shall listen. So Moses said that, 1815, if we go down to 1818, God chimes in. Here's God speaking. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth. Christ says that again and again in the Gospel of John. I don't speak from my own. I speak from my father. I've learned this from my father. I'm telling you what my father told me. He does that over and over. He's that prophet. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So they've, they've correct, they knew these words, and they've correctly identified this is him. There's a little more. Later at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy 34 someone other than Moses is writing the end of the book because it's about Moses' death. We don't know who the penman was. Moses wrote the book. Somebody wrote this, this part near the end. Verse 10, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. No other, says the commentator, after Moses has died. So that's, that's what they're referring to when they say, this is the prophet. They're saying, that one from 1,400 years ago, he's here. So what do they do? Verse 14, John 6, 14. 
when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And then what happened? Let's, let's just pause there a minute. Um, the story goes on. If you've read it, you probably know about it. Night falls. And the disciples, we don't know where Jesus is, but the disciples get into boats and they cross the sea and land on the other side of this little sea of Tiberias. But they have a, an interesting thing happen on the way over. You remember what happens? So it, it, there's a lot of wind and the sea is really rough and they're kind of worried and they see someone walking toward them on the water and it's Jesus. And Jesus stills the waters. Imagine you're the guys in the boat and you see this. First he walked over to us and then he said, be still. And it all went, shoo. No more wind, not a ripple. This is what happened. But none of the people, none of the crowd knows this. But now back to the crowd. Verse 22, on the next day, the crowd that remained. So we know some have gone home. Maybe they weren't interested anymore. Maybe they just don't sleep well unless they're home with their CPAP. So they went home. They need their own pillow and blanket. I don't know what it is. Some of them went home. So we don't know. We're not told how many remain. We can get an idea from what's coming. They're going to get in boats and cross over the sea. So it can't be 20,000 anymore. How big were the boats? How many boats? We don't know. There's a lot we don't know. But on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea, back there where the miracle had been performed, saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. So where's Jesus? Well, somewhere in there, other boats showed up. Boats from Tiberias came near the place to where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, so the disciples are gone, we saw them sail away. We can't find Jesus. We don't know where he got to. Maybe somehow he got over there with them. When the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? He, he couldn't have walked around the sea in that time, and it was dark. They could have just as well, how, when, what happened here? He does not answer their question. He's got something else he wants to speak to them about, and he cuts right to it. And I'm going to warn you, this is not nice Jesus. If you're one of those people that has this picture of Jesus, this monochromatic, only one color to it, and Jesus is always like super, super amazing, nice. And so we as Christians should all just always be super nice. Pay attention. Rabbi, when did you come here? Verse 26, Jesus answered them, truly, truly. That's in the Greek, it's the word amen. Amen, amen. Jesus says truly, truly a number of times. Why does he do it? It's a rhetorical advice, meaning you ought to really listen to this part. This part, when I'm done saying this, you should say amen twice. That's how good this is. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He goes straight for the jugular of their crass motives. Jesus had obviously not been schooled in seeker service 
ways of doing things. This is not how you open your message to the crowd. You're here for the wrong, what if I open my sermon today? You all show up, we finish singing, and I say, you are all here for the wrong reason. And then I point to some motive you have. Somebody take me aside, Pastor Steve, you need to read How to Win Friends and Influence People. You should be nice. Jesus answered, Amen, amen, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs. Well, they sort of were, but what he means is you saw the signs, but they didn't point you to the right thing. You should have seen the signs and said, this is the Messiah. This is God. No one's ever done these things. We should bow and worship and adore and open our hearts and give them to him. You didn't do any of that. You're only really here because you want another cheap meal. Because you ate your fill of the loaves. This is tough love Jesus. I want to introduce you to tough love Jesus. This is rebuking Jesus. This is confrontational Jesus. Do you have a multifaceted understanding of the person of Jesus? You don't just have a uni, he only has one attribute and it's nice. He only does one thing, and it always feels like your understanding of love. Some people have a very lopsided view of Jesus, a truncated Jesus, a caricature of Jesus. They have one favorite passage in which Jesus is exceedingly, exceedingly nice, and that's the key passage, the defining passage. That's the only passage. That's what Jesus is like. Yeah, but there are some other passages about Jesus in the Bible. And we're in one of them. It's a good one. John Piper suggested this in a sermon I heard him preach, I don't know when, sometime in the past. And I probably won't even get the details right, but you'll get the point. He was talking about this thing, caricatures of Jesus. He didn't use that word, I don't think. But he suggested an interesting exercise. He said, read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and take a pencil and put a little, I don't know which letter he used, here's my put a little T out in the margin if what you just read looks like tough Jesus, and put a little N out in the margin if what you just read looks like nice Jesus. You'll have mostly T's. I guarantee you, you will not have many N's, not unless you turn it into something where he's nice. So, People with this view of Jesus, and then they think, and gospel ministers should then be like their view of Jesus, and brothers and sisters in Christ should be like their view of Jesus. And there's no confrontational, and there's nothing offensive. (laughs) It reminds me of that time. You remember that time when Jesus preached, and the disciples said to him, they're like doing the debrief. They're they're doing the, what do you call it? The, uh, The retro. And they say, don't you know that they were offended? How many think Jesus knew they'd be offended? Yeah, he knows all things. Jesus did not mind saying words to people that he knew would offend them. In fact, he did it a lot. Put an O in the margin. 
Every time it's offensive, Jesus. Put a C in the margin. Every time it's confrontational, Jesus. You're going to have a lot of letters that aren't N in your margins. I mean it a lot. The real Jesus of the Gospels is multifaceted. He's Jesus. He's God in the flesh. He's got so many, fa- so many ways that you'll see him interacting with people. And don't rule out these ways. Be careful of the temptation to shave off the rough edges of Jesus Christ as he is revealed in God's word. So they say, Rabbi, uh, we just have a simple question. When, when did you come here? And he says, you're coming for the wrong reasons. You just want bread. And now he's going to really explain what the sign meant, what they should have understood from the bread, what they should have reasoned with what just happened with the bread and what they knew from the Old Testament and what Moses and God said. Here's what they should have done. Verse 27, it's getting better. It's heating up. Verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life. And then this strange twist, the surprising element, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Let's talk about this a little bit. What's the seal? Let's start there. Most likely John chapter 1, verses 31 to 34. At Jesus' baptism, they saw the Holy Spirit come down like a dove, and they heard the voice of the Father say, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. That's God setting a seal on Jesus, most likely that passage. But notice what Jesus says to them. Do not work for the food that perishes. What had they just done? Worked for the food that perishes. They rowed themselves in boats across the Sea of Tiberias because they wanted another meal of Jesus' free bread and fish. They were working for the food that perishes. And Jesus uses this figure of speech. It's It's a hyperbole. It's an exaggeration for effect. And he says, do not work for food that perishes. Now, we know that's an exaggeration because elsewhere in the Bible it says, if any man will not work, neither let him eat. Don't feed him. He's lazy. Starve him out. Make him get a job. Don't feed him. That wasn't very PC either, but anyway. But Jesus says to them, don't work for the food that perishes. It's as if you are working so hard to receive the bread of life, which I'll give you. You don't really even have to work. The work is to believe. The work is to receive. You're working so hard to know him who is to know, who to know is everlasting life, that it's as if by comparison, you don't even have a job. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. And then this twist again, which the son of man will give you. Work for what I'll give you. What's what's that? You don't really have to work for it. I'll give it to you. But this ought to be the thing you want. This ought to be the thing you're after. And I will give it to you. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. My dear friend, Jesus Christ has food for your soul. Do you know yet? Have you discovered yet how hungry you are? Have you figured out how 
not satisfying this world is, or are you still taking more and more buckets to more and more wells with longer and longer ropes, lowering them in and taking a drink, thinking it will satisfy you? Ah, and the, oops, and the satisfaction is gone. Have you not noticed that things that seem attractive, like this would be fun to have, are, are more interesting when you're anticipating them, and once you get them, they're anticlimactic, and you're off in a day or two to the next, what's the next thing that'll satisfy my soul? And they never do. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I just pray, I pray that something in this passage today will awaken a hunger in your soul, and you will want to have the bread of God, which is eternal life in Jesus Christ. And the work that you do, what do you do? Let's go on. He said, which, which I'll give you. There's more about that. They respond. Jesus said, I'll give it to you. Verse, 20, verse 28, they, then they said to him, what must we do? Look, I just told you I'll give it to you. But Jesus did say, work the works of. What must we do to be doing the works of God? And what they were thinking is like, do I need to do some spiritual calisthenics? Do I need to go on a pilgrimage or a retreat? Do I have to memorize Deuteronomy? What do I have to, what, what, what's the job? What do I have to do? And Jesus made it very clear what he meant. Verse six, chapter six, verse 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe. The work is to believe. It's not a work. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. The work God requires is saving faith. It's that you come to a place where, where you place your saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He becomes your God. He becomes your Savior. He's your Redeemer. And to finish it out, he's your friend. This is the work of God, that you believe. Let's take a little side trip for a moment over into Romans. This is what Paul teaches us in his terminology, in his way of using language. Romans uh, 3.28 for we hold that one is justified, made right with God, by faith. Faith is the same word in Greek as believing. Same word, pistis. One is justified by faith apart from works of the law. They're thinking, okay, which works of the law do you want us to perform? And Jesus says, no, 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 it's not that. It's believe. That's what Paul says right here. He says it again in Titus. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7 but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, like in John 6, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and by the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Hallelujah is right. Jesus, the Son of God, is standing right before them, dealing with them for their souls, beaming, saving light into their eyeballs, into their brains, down toward their hearts. And notice now how they respond. Verse 30. So they say to him, then what sign do you do? that we may see and believe you. Didn't I just feed 20,000 of you? Didn't I just disappear across the lake overnight? You can't even figure out how I got it. What sign do I do? What work do you perform? And then they give them a hint. Here's what they really want. 
They're looking at God the Son. They're hearing words like no man ever spake. And they give him this hint. Here's what we really want. Here's why we came across looking for you. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. I'm reminded of Paul's verse in Philippians 3.19. I'll show it to you here. Their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. They were worshiping the belly God. We want food. You're staring at the Son of God. You're looking into his eyeballs. He's telling you words like you've never heard before. He's pleading with your soul. He's speaking to you about coming to Christ and finding eternal life. And all they say is, can I have a sandwich now? (laughs) Sounds like one of your kids, doesn't it? They've misbehaved. You're dealing with them. You're explaining the law of God and the righteousness of God. You point them to Christ, and, you're all, and you pray together, and you're all done. And you say, now, do you have anything to say? Yeah, can I have my sandwich now? That's what they're doing. Our fathers ate manna. He gave them bread. Jesus drops a total atomic truth bomb right on them. It's still not nice Jesus. I'm sorry, if you're waiting for nice Jesus, it's another chapter. Oh, it gets worse. By the end of this chapter, John 6, 6, 6, it reads, many of them went back and followed him no more. All that glitters isn't gold. Everybody's saying, Lord, Lord, isn't saved. And some of them followed him for a time till till he started giving them even stronger words later in the chapter. Verse 32, then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, second time, I say to you, let me clarify. Let me correct your theology, guys. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. Like, did Moses make that happen? No, who was it? Yeah, that was God, right? So you guys are too enamored with Moses. He was the towering giant of the Old Testament. He's the great prophet. But you need to leave Moses and come to Christ. Moses is to point you to Christ, to show you your sin and your need for a savior. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, so you're all excited about a guy when you need to be all excited about God. But, and now he brings it into the present tense. He's saying, here's what's happening right here, right now with you and with me. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Oh. Jesus is the true bread. You want some true bread? It's better than Panera bread. You want some true bread? My father gives. Again, that word gives. It's free, the gift of God. He gives. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. You can have it. He gives it to you. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is standing in front of them and saying, it's me. Don't you understand? You can find life through me because he's God in the flesh. He's pleading with them for their souls. Verse 34, they still don't get it because they're dead in their trespasses and sins. Because a veil lies over their eyes and when Moses is read, they don't get it. 
because their hearts are calloused and hardened and not soft and ready to receive God's words. The word doesn't go in. They don't understand. The Holy Spirit is not illuminating their understanding. And verse 34, they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Can we have a free meal every day? It's all they're thinking about. Son of God, right in front of them. Can we have a free meal? Jesus makes it more clear. Verse 35, this is amazing. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. That, by the way, is the first of, there are seven I am statements made by Jesus in the Gospel of John. This is the first of them, where you have I am and a predicate. I am the bread of life, the predicate. There's seven of those. I am the door, I am the great shepherd, others. And then there's one, also in the Gospel of John, where there's, he says I am and there's no predicate. It's just I am. From, I believe it's Exodus chapter 3, the, the, where God revealed himself. You want to know who? Who sent you? Tell, tell them, I am sent you. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Of course, he's speaking about hunger and thirst of soul. Man, he'll fill you with his Holy Spirit. He'll adopt you into the family of God. He will give you new life. You'll be a new creature in Christ. Old things will pass away. All things will become new. You'll never hunger and you'll never thirst. Work for that food. The reason why you're not dead yet, the reason why you're still on the planet, if you're not a Christian, the reason why you're still on the planet is God is being merciful to you and giving you a little more time and giving you another day. Don't presume on how many there will be. He's giving you another day that you may seek him and find him through Jesus Christ. That you may say, I have eaten the best of this world and I have drunk the best of this world and I am hungry and thirsty and there's got to be something more and there's something more is Jesus Christ, the bread of life. I've said it before, time is given to us in order to prepare our souls for eternity. So we're going to start right there next week, those, those words, and then it gets really crazy. So I hope I'm reeling you into next Sunday. <laughs> Have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? Is he the bread that is nourishing your soul? This is the one thing necessary in your life. Believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for this amazing passage that we've begun to open up. We pray that you will open up eyes and open up hearts to repent, to believe on the Lord Jesus. We pray that during this Easter season, people will come into this room and be saved. Father, would you use us, would you use our weak and frail efforts to lead people to Jesus Christ? We pray for our boys and girls downstairs. Thank you for all the faithful teachers. 
who are down there laboring for their souls and preaching the gospel to them. We pray that you would open the eyes of little hearts down there and that from an early age, they would repent and believe on you, Lord Jesus. And we pray that you would satisfy us, your people, so richly, so deeply with the bread of life that we will no longer long for this earth's wares. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.